Welcome to the Kennedy Report. I'm Kennedy Hall. This is our second episode in our series talking about creationism and evolution. And today we're going to focus on the sacred history of the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. In our last episode, we spoke about how the errors of Russia that Our Lady told us about over a hundred years ago are actually a warning sign, not just for the errors of Russian communism and those ideas that would come out, but inherent in those errors is the error of evolutionary theory. And if you haven't watched that episode, I recommend you go back because we do lay the groundwork for, we introduce what the theory of evolution is about, what are its origins, how does it play into the last century and the sort of many things that have gone on since the spreading of Russia's errors. And it's quite fascinating and, and really lays the groundwork for understanding why this is such an important theory. Evolutionism is a major error and it's been spread. The result has been disastrous on the faith of many Christians in general, but also especially many Catholics. And this has been done by way of destroying the credibility of the sacred scriptures of the Holy Bible in their eyes. And the result has been terrible. I remember a couple years ago, maybe three years ago, I was sitting at a men's conference. And it was a great men's conference. It was a great speaker. And he was talking about the relationship between Adam and Eve. And he was going in depth in the first book of uh, the Bible, in Genesis. And I remember looking around at a certain point because I believed in the true history, in the literal history of Adam and Eve and how it was put forth in the Bible. But I know that's not the case for a lot of Catholics, even conservative Catholics. And I sort of looked around the room and I thought to myself, just as an aside, I thought, I wonder how many people in here are doing sort of uh, mental gymnastics, how they have a sort of cognitive dissonance. Where on one hand, they say, I believe in this Darwinian idea that there's ape-like ancestors and sort of no truth to the Genesis narrative. But on the other hand, they're taking this at face value as something that's just sort of a religious truth. And I thought, that must be frustrating on the spiritual life. Wouldn't it be better if we could just prove that the sacred history of Genesis is actually true? Well, luckily for us, it is. Now, one thing Our Lady warned about as well that I'd like to remind us of is she talked about the advent of immodest fashions, ways of dressing that promoted vice amongst young men and women especially. I don't think it's a coincidence that in a world where we have been told that we descend from beasts, that we act in an animalistic way. And these errors go even further than that. We see so much today of what we could call animalistic behavior. People give in to every single desire of the flesh. We even advocate for these desires as being normal and acceptable and even virtuous. Anyone with young children knows just how hard it is to protect them from all of the sins of the flesh that are just promoted and even sold to young children of all ages. Furthermore, we also have a, a tribal rage that is filling the minds and hearts of so many people in this world. And groups of people, different races, ethnicities, political classes, etc., they're just in this constant state of tension. And it really reminds you of the way that animals act when you look at nature documentaries and things about how they act when they're trying to find territory. And it's this is not the way that we have always acted. We've always had war. We've always had conflicts and things. But we had unifying principles through the one true faith that we all shared, especially in Christendom. But today, especially because of the way evolutionary theory has denigrated belief in the Bible for so many Christians, we're left with this animalistic tribalism. And this is inherent in our denial of the sacred scriptures. In any case, 
This is why we must get to the heart of these questions. It really is a matter of faith, and we must be confident in the scriptures. You know, you might think about it like this. If we are to deny the beginning of scriptures, i.e. looking at the first, namely about 11 chapters of Genesis from the reality of the creation of Adam and Eve all the way through the story of Noah, we won't go too much into Noah over this series, but that's a big thing that's denied by people who deny Genesis as well. If we look at those things with this very skeptical eye, then who's to say we're going to believe the rest of the Bible? And this is something that we need to think about because Jesus speaks about Genesis when he says things like, Moses wrote of me in this way. He's talking about the traditional authorship of the Bible, of Genesis, and he's talking about things that Christ himself, who is the incarnate wisdom, who is God and man, saying that these things are true. So we need to be absolutely sure that we're going to read the Bible in a very traditional and Catholic way. Now, before we continue, I ask for a little bit of humility. The theological framework in the Catholic Church has been a train wreck for a few decades. In our past, we have thousands of years of doctrine and dogma, good philosophy, and all these sorts of things that can help us. But even most priests today, and especially popular apologists, only look to recent theological ideas, only look to things from the last 50 or 60 years. And on the subject of creation and evolutionism, it's almost like the only insult that a Catholic isn't willing to receive today is to be called a so-called fundamentalist. And that's actually quite interesting for us as Catholics because really as Catholics, as Christians who believe in the sacraments, as Christians who believe that when the words of consecration are said, that our Lord comes down on the altar, for Christians who believe that, we are the true so-called fundamentalists. And what do I mean by that? We believe all the fundamentals of the faith. Sure, it's a good thing that various Protestant groups hold the Bible in such high esteem, but they interpret it in a way that separates themselves from the traditions of the apostolic succession of our church. We shouldn't be scared of these labels, and they're meaningless at the end of the day. And one thing that we don't like to hear as Catholics is we don't like to be called anti-science. Well, just for a moment here, science really is just a word that means knowledge. The church is not anti-science. The church is pro-knowledge. But if the natural sciences are an error, then the church, because she is pro-truth, as Christ tells us, he is the way, the truth, and the life. If something in the natural sciences contradicts what we know to be true by faith, then we do have to cast that aside. We do that with everything. And I want to appeal specifically here to many of my faithful conservative Catholic friends and brothers in Christ out there. We have no problem believing that when the priest says, in Latin or whatever language, you know, this is my body, and a miraculous event takes place and transforms what was simple bread and wine into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord. We have no problem believing that. But if we really were to be honest with ourselves, that's a very, quote-unquote, anti-scientific proposition. But we see it through the eyes of faith. And we know that our Lord, our God, is capable of great miracles all the time. So we need to look at the history of Genesis with that, those same eyes of faith, because as St. Paul tells us, we walk by faith and not by sight. Now, we're going to go into specific details, but how do we approach the Bible when we're looking into this topic? First, there is freedom when we're interpreting the Bible. That's true. Obviously, you know, I always say the Word of God, God's Word, the, the, the Holy Scriptures, it's not two-dimensional. It's not horizontal. It's three-dimensional. Okay, And we would expect nothing less 
from the words of our Lord. I mean, if the Holy Ghost is going to inspire something to be written, we would expect that it would have depth and profundity to it. So it makes perfect sense that there could be multiple ways for you know finding personal meaning in interpreting scriptures. The church does not forbid reading the scriptures in a way that speaks to where you are in life, and that's a beautiful thing about them. But there are things that we do have to believe. We cannot look at the Bible in this compartmentalized fashion, where we say, well, these books are specifically about history, these books are specifically about visions, these books are specifically about morals. There are certain books that definitely transmit these ideas with more strength and more focus, but it's possible for something to have various senses all at the same time. And any Canadian, and perhaps any, I would imagine people from the United Kingdom as well, but perhaps some Americans know this as well, we have this famous poem that I like to use as an example of how we can look at something that's poetic and historical and a moral lesson at the same time. And this is the famous poem called In Flanders Fields. I don't remember it. We all had to memorize it when I was in grade six and present it to the class, but I think right after I presented it, I probably forgot it, like you do with many things you need to memorize. But it begins with something like, In Flanders fields the poppies blow between the crosses row on row. And it continues. It goes on to talk about the meaning of life and the death of the soldiers and all these things that are part of the tragedy of the First World War. Now, is this poem a history? In the strictest sense of the word, it's not, in the sense where we think about a history book. But it is historical. Is this poem obviously metaphorical? It's that as well. Does it have a moral framework to it? It does. It warns us about the horrors of war. And it even talks about final things like the destiny of life and, and life and death and those end parts of our life. This is a multidimensional thing. And traditionally, in our literature, in our civilizations before the modern era, we had no problem understanding that it was possible for something to be, on multiple levels, true at the same time. So, we talk about the two major senses in the Catholic Church about interpreting Scripture. On the one hand, we have the literal or historical sense, and on the other hand, we have what we call the spiritual sense. Now, the spiritual sense is further divided into what we call the allegorical, what we call the tropological or moral sense. Tropological is a fancy way of saying moral. And then we also have the anagogical. The allegory speaks to faith, lessons and things like that, and things we must believe, and images on how to do that. The moral speaks to how to act, moral, you know, how we, how we act rightly and justly in God's sight. The anagogical speaks to our destiny, so final things, okay? And once again, if we go back to that quick little poem from the First World War, we actually see all of those things present in there. So, all senses of scripture, according to St. Thomas Aquinas, we need to establish the literal sense first. It doesn't mean that all books in the Bible are only literal. Some books, like if you read through the books of Kings and it goes through the various lineages and things, admittedly, if, you, if it's hard to read the, the long names and stuff, it can be a little bit hard to read through. It's clearly the historical, the literal, is the thing that's being emphasized the most. But then we have the Gospels. I mean, think just quickly, for example, about reading about the passion and death of our Lord. Well, clearly that's a historical event, but there's also great allegory in it. I mean, think about it for a sec. Of course, we know that Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, is nailed to the cross and he dies on Good Friday. But we also know that in another sense, we have an allegory. We have a metaphor. We have the truth itself being mocked and ridiculed by those in power. And they think that the truth has died and then the truth always comes back to light. The truth resurrects. We have a physical historical event, 
of Jesus Christ going through his passion, death, and resurrection. And we also have a uh, metaphorical, a poetic, an analogical, or an allegorical, sorry, event talking about what that means. It's totally fine that these things are true at the same time. So when people say things like, well, you know, Genesis, it's not a science book. It's not a science textbook. Well, thanks be to God it's not a science textbook because it's so much more than that. Not only does it tell us about how things came to be, but it tells us why things came to be. It tells us what their purpose is about the God who loves us, all these sorts of things. Very important to think about. We suffer from this great lack of literary understanding in our age, so keep in mind this traditional view of looking at things when we're going through this next little bit that we're going to talk about. Now, luckily for us, we have authoritative teaching. I mean, I was listening to one uh, Catholic commentator say, says, you know, the, the Catholic Church has an authoritative opinion on almost anything. If you want to know what to do on the third Tuesday of every month, there's probably some document from Thomas Aquinas about what to do that day. And that's good, because when we're trying to understand these controversial topics, we need to have resources. I want to think like the Church. I want to think like the saints. I don't want to just think like myself. I want to have their opinions if they're, you know, higher than mine. So luckily, we have what's called the Pontifical Biblical Commission. Now, the Pontifical Biblical Commission was most active under the reign of Pope St. Pius X. And its job, essentially, was to answer a series of questions that uh, at the time were being hotly contested. So the authorship of Genesis, who was it written by? Many Catholic commentators today will tell you that it wasn't actually written by Moses, but it was written you know, around 500 years before the coming of Christ as the Jews were coming out of captivity in Babylon. It's called uh, something like the Documentary Hypothesis. I think that's what it's called. But that's starkly contrast to the traditional understanding. And in fact, that idea was taken from German Protestant theologians in the 1800s. So it's not a Catholic idea in the slightest. Pope Pius X, he wrote a document called Prestentia Scripturae. And this was written against modernist biblical scholarship, which was going around at the time. It's a wonderful document. I recommend anyone trying to understand how to read the Bible with the mind of the church reads this document. But he wrote in this document, and, and listen to this language. He said, All are bound in conscience to submit to the decisions of the biblical commission. What does that mean? He's saying we're morally bound to submit to the findings of this commission, and if we go against those, then we have gone against our formed conscience from the Holy Father, and we've committed a sinful act. So we need to be careful. Now, however, after the Second Vatican Council, so many things have changed, but one of the things that changed was that the Pontifical Biblical Commission was essentially relegated to an association of biblical scholars with no magisterial authority. And this is admitted by the hierarchy at the time. It, they sort of took the name and made a different thing. But the change in the commission's role and authority post-Second Vatican Council does not impact the solemn and papal-approved pronouncements from before the Second Vatican Council. And they have never been abrogated. We can't just throw these away. That's not how we operate as Catholics. These decisions still stand. So... What did the Pontifical Biblical Commission say that was so important for our understanding of Genesis? Well, for one, the PBC, as I'll call it, instead of saying that Pontifical Biblical Commission over and over again, the PBC clarified that Moses was, in fact, the primary author of Genesis. Seems easy enough, as Christ says this. 
It may be that Moses being the primary author, that he might have appealed to some written tradition. He could have consulted some other documents, but that's what authors do. They partly have their inspiration, and in his case, the Holy Ghost inspired him to write without error. But they can obviously appeal to things and discern whether they're true or not. But Moses was the primary author. Certain objections may rise and say, well, uh, Moses writes about his death then. Well, it's possible. I mean, he was a great, the greatest prophet before the coming of Christ. I mean, he could have known when he was going to die. It's not above God to give that knowledge to someone. Or it could have been after his death. Once again, the PBC says he's the primary author. It could have been that his progeny, you know, writes in a few lines saying, and, you know, Moses is laid to rest at a certain place. There's nothing wrong with that. The PBC is clear. Now, regarding the historicity of Genesis... The Pontifical Biblical Commission released a series of questions. And the first three clarify that actual events took place the way that they're written in Scripture. So, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We've all heard the story. Day one, day two, you know, day three, etc. The Pontifical Biblical Commission declares that things like the special creation of Adam and Eve is a historical event. And I say special creation. Okay, Evolution does not allow for special creation. Special creation is God spoke and it came to be out of nothing or out of almost nothing. Right? He could have used the slime of the earth, the dust that it says in Genesis, but nonetheless, it's a special act of creation not possible by any known biological processes. It also talks about the creation of all things at the beginning of time. That's important. It doesn't say stuff began at the beginning of time. Okay, fair enough. It says the creation of all things at the beginning of time. Now, after it sort of ratifies the historical truth, the remaining questions deal with the issues pertaining to how we might have freedom in interpreting sorts of things. And, of course, we can have freedom in interpreting sorts of, uh, certain things. What the pontifical... Biblical Commission says to us, and this is in the later questions, it says, we are told, for example, that we must hold to the pious opinions of the church fathers. Now, all of the church fathers, except for Clement of Alexandria, Origen, and St. Augustine, all of them, except for those three that we can tell through reading through the documents, they all held to what we would call a literal six-day creation belief. The only difference with Augustine, Origen, and Clement of Alexandria was that they were reading the scriptures, and and I actually sympathize with St. Augustine's view. I'm quite a uh, disciple of him and his works. When he reads that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, well, he makes the assumption that because God is outside of space and time, essentially it's an instantaneous creation, And from there, the heavens, i.e. the heavenly realms, and the earth, which is the physical mundane things, those things are created instantaneously as well. And he looks at the six days as a way that the information is revealed. Okay, Um, But nonetheless, that is very different than St. Augustine advocating for something like evolution. In fact, if we call fundamentalist Christians fundamentalists because they believe in six days, well... St. Augustine is advocating for something like less than six days. So in that logic, he's sort of like the fundamentalist fundamentalist, if you know what I'm saying. And we're allowed to hold to these pious opinions. Of course we are, because none of them are contrary to what is in the sense of Scripture. Okay? I'll give you a quick little analogy here. If you were to say to me, for example, you know, the carpenter went to work, and at the beginning of the week, he finished the shelves. Pretty simple. 
Well, there's only really two ways to understand that. One is he has some sort of magical powers, and he snaps his fingers, and the shelves are made the moment he walks into his job. Well, he doesn't have those powers, so the only reasonable sense is the beginning of the week is Monday and Tuesday. Once you get to Wednesday, the beginning of the week becomes the middle of the week. You understand what I'm saying? So, sure, we can say, well, it might have been on Monday, it might have been on Tuesday, but it wasn't on Thursday, Friday, or Saturday, okay? We have to understand the sense of the language. If it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, well, that means, in the eyes of St. Augustine, because of God's omnipotent and almighty power, sure, he could speak and all things could be made in an instant. But it also means that it could be just within those supernatural days of creation that we hear of. There's nothing wrong with any of those. Unfortunately, many will stretch these divergent interpretations. You know, I've seen various Catholic apologetic outlets and they're good. This isn't me trying to pick a fight with them or anything, but I'll see things and they'll say, well, can a Catholic believe in evolution? And they'll sort of stretch the truth and say, well, you know, Catholics aren't required to believe in six literal days, which is technically true because we can hold that there are less than six days. But they'll say Catholics don't need to believe in six literal days because St. Augustine didn't believe in six literal days. Now, I shudder to think what St. Augustine, the doctor of grace, you know, the man who inspired uh, St. Thomas Aquinas more than even Aristotle in his philosophy. I mean, I would shudder to think what he would be thinking seeing this because he was not interpreting it in the way that people are stretching it to be. Um, They'll say, well, he didn't believe in six literal days, which means that we can look at things metaphorically, which means, you know, the scientists are saying X, Y, and Z, and therefore that's stretching it too far. It's not in keeping with the sense, okay? And that's not fair to the great father of the church, St. Augustine. Once again, these church fathers all said six days or less. That's what they said. Pontifical Biblical Commission says we should hold to these. Now, the final answer from the series of questions, I believe it's questions eight or nine. I can't remember off the top of my head. But it does give permission to hold that the word for day may not always be a 24-hour period. And once again, I've seen this question taken out of context. People will take the final question and they'll write an article saying, look, the PBC says... You don't have to believe in literal 24-hour days. Sure, because the PBC gives us the context and the framework in saying, this is true, this is true, this is true. Hold the pious opinions, hold with pious opinion the opinions of the church fathers. And what do we see in the church fathers? We see that St. Augustine holds to an instantaneous creation. Okay, So yes, do we not have to believe in 24-hour days on every single moment in there? Of course. We look at the seventh day of creation. Okay, And we know that's sort of an eternal day. On the seventh day, God rested and he stopped creating new things. So some people will say, you know, are are we still in that seventh day? Okay, there's an argument to be made for that. But this all has to be seen within the context of what the PBC has said on the matter. And remember, Pope St. Pius X, the hammer of modernism, perhaps the greatest pope we've had in, you know, half a millennium. Pope St. Pius X is saying, we must hold to these declarations under the pain of conscience. We need to see them through the eyes of faith. Now, to conclude with, I'll just go over a couple statements here and summarize some of the information. It's worth noting that both the First Vatican Council and the Council of Trent declared that we must hold, okay, and these are infallible ecumenical councils, we must hold to the unanimity of the interpretation of the Church Fathers when it comes to Scripture. So I'll repeat that. Both the Council of Trent and the First Vatican Council big deal ecumenical councils, tell us that we have to hold to the interpretation where the church fathers are unanimous. So let's look at the things that all of the church fathers hold in common. 
when we look at all of their works, we find the following consensus. That less than 6,000 years had passed from the creation of the world to the birth of Jesus. Okay, that's very different than billions. That the creation of the cosmos took place in six 24-hour days or less in an instantaneous moment of time. We also find that they all said that God created the different kinds of living things instantly and immediately. We also find that Adam was created from the dust of the earth, or the slime, depending on your translation, and Eve was created from his side. And we also see that it says that God ceased, according to the church fathers, God ceased to create new kinds of creatures after the creation of Adam. Now, that's the consensus of the church fathers. Council of Trent says we have to hold to their consensus on scripture. So does the First Vatican Council. We have no reason to go against those unless we would like to disobey the traditions of our sacred faith. Now, that's as far as we're going to go today. In our next episode, we're going to show that the case for the binding dogmas and doctrines is even stronger than the one we have right now, with many de fide statements from councils and other places, and we'll explain what those mean. So, until next time, thank you for joining me. This has been the Kennedy Report, and God bless.